we're always looking for arts, even shopping for nice clothes. That's fashion design. That's art. So you think arts is frivolous, but it's what we we're always looking for. It. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Sembrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedwell Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know that those products do not use themselves, and that is why Speedwell works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedwell team of demo artists. Artists like Mike Pennekamp, star of episode 82 of the Hello Print Friend podcast. Mike's practice of weaving nostalgic tropes with pop culture explores the historical place of the American landscape as its own site where anxieties and myths about the unknown have long been probed. It's really good stuff. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel and see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Michelle Fong. We talk about the process of building her world of Paluta what it's like to take on a print project that could last decades, finding inspiration in the new woodcut movement of China of the 1930s, her upcoming research trip to the North Pole, and I get an on-the-fly interview with the president of Paluta for a spot in this utopian artist colony in the sky. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to ride some flying elephants with Michelle Fong. Hello, Miranda. I'm doing great. So great to talk to you. You too. You too. I was so delighted to get an email from you introducing yourself. And I I think I told you a little bit off air. It was a, just a lovely message. And then I opened up the work and I took, I think, maybe look a look at one or two pieces of your work. And I was like, I got to talk to this person. I want to know more. So I'm just really happy that we were able to connect and make the time zones work. I know it's a bit early for me, a bit late for you, but we'll have a chance to, yeah, help share your story and I'll get to learn more about you and your practice. Thank you, Miranda. I'm already in love with you. You don't have to convince me. <laughs> <laughs> the flattery will get you everywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> That's my middle name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, before we get into your story, would you please Introduce yourself and just let people know who you are, where you are, what you do. Yes, my name is Michelle Fong. I am a Hong Kong Canadian interdisciplinary artist. So I'm based in Hong Kong. And among other medium, I also do printmaking. I only do woodcuts right now. I'm completely self-taught. And that story began in 2018, which I will share a bit more. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm really excited to learn about that. I don't get to chat with too many self-taught printmakers. Printmaking is such an academic medium. And often I hear the story that's like, where'd you come to printmaking? And everyone has a, a beautiful 
origin story of walking by an open door in their art classroom and seeing a printing press or something like that. And I always love those stories, but it's always really exciting too to talk to someone who had a bit of a different path. So I'm excited to get there, but to lay the groundwork for Michelle a little bit more, where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Mm, I grew up in Hong Kong and Canada. I moved to Canada when I was 11. And I'm just going to tell you a childhood story that will pretty much tell you what kind of person I was. So when I was a very young child, I, before I could write or talk, I started scribbling on Mm. the living room wall, on my mom's sewing machine (laughs) and everywhere. And then they were just so smart and wise and had high emotionally, uh, emotional intelligence that when we renovated our home, they had me pick the wallpaper for both the living room and the bedroom. So mm-hmm. it just became too precious to draw on, right? And uh, I resorted to drawing. Smart. Very smart, yeah. But then I was smarter because I outsmarted them and started drawing underneath the living room coffee table. No one else could oh access it. It was so small. And then no one discovered until years later that we moved apartments and the movers flipped the coffee table, and then they saw my years of masterpiece. <laughs> I'm, I'm just completely distraught because they didn't keep the, the table and they didn't even take a picture. So I have, I just don't remember what it looks like anymore. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but that was, yeah, that was years of, of Michelle's artistic life. Oh my Had goodness. Only they kept it. They could have sold it now. <laughs> exactly, right? Like this is going to yeah. be an important part of your archive. Come on. <laughs> There's yeah. no, no art historical sense there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the story is still here. It's still in my memory. And I still Absolutely. share that story. Yeah. And so it sounds like you could not be kept from drawing and, <laughs> and wanting to do installation-based media, it sounds like, on the walls and under the coffee table. And, and sort of beyond that, did, did your pants take you to museums? Were you someone who had a good art program in school, where did it it sort of fit into your life in that way? I actually think my family did more than my school. In fact, Mm. when I was five in kindergarten, my my kindergarten teacher actually made fun of my drawing. And I, (gasps) yeah, she actually, I remember I drew a policeman and and of course, I wasn't very good. So the head was about this big, and then the legs were about this small. And then she let the whole class to look at my drawing and laughed at my proportion. And just because I had such an unhealthy sense of ego, and then I looked at the teacher and looked at my drawing, looked at my teacher and looked at my drawing, and I thought, the drawing was fantastic. What are you talking about? And then I just completely ignored the teacher. And I just didn't understand what she was talking about. So... I, but I, I, I'm really, really, really grateful for my parents, even though mm. my, my, my mom is kind of artistic in the literary sense, but my father was an engineer. It's just mm. like complete logical sense of art, but they were so supportive, which is unheard of in an Asian family. They encouraged me to have my own thoughts, my ideas, and they would back me up, even though sometimes they disagreed with me. And I think that is more powerful than any formal arts education. Mm. And I'm, I'm still forever grateful for them today because they still have the same support for me. Wow, that's so beautiful. And I love what you're saying about how learning kind of how to think and how to back up your ideas and 
to have a freedom in thinking that is so valuable when it comes to being a creative person. And sometimes you, you're right. You don't get that kind of training, even in art school. You get a, this is, this is how you do proportions and this is how you cite Foucault. But that idea of, of if it's, it's, I don't know, it reminds me of that old phrase about like, if you, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. If you teach a man to fish, it's, it's like learning the skill set that, that then you can go forward with it. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're listening and if, if, if your parents really just give your child that, that freedom because to acknowledge and to support your child is really more than anything because I'm still seeking for their approval. Like it's, right. <laughs> like I still want them to be proud of me. Yeah. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's, it's so important. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And so you were this creative kid. You had this great support system. And so how did you go from that young Michelle to being artist Michelle? What was that journey like? Wow. I guess, I guess my parents never doubted that I would become an artist or someone creative. Actually, before the age of two, they thought I would become an actor, but then very soon they discovered I was probably going to be a visual artist. Mm. So when I chose art for university, for college, they weren't surprised. And I think just one thing led to another. I didn't want to do anything else. And I'm still making works now. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so where does printmaking come into this story for you? I never thought I would do printmaking and I didn't even really know what printmaking was. So in 2018, the only printmaking experience I had was an A5, like five by seven, lino cut project in first year foundation course. Uh I I just absolutely didn't know what I was doing. So why printmaking and why this really crazy 99 woodcuts project? I mean, mean, when you do it, why do you make such a huge project? So all my works revolves around building a futuristic world in 2084. That's a project I began in 2015 and it's a lifelong project. I fully anticipate to be still working on it in in 2084 if I'm still around. (laughs) So in in this world, there are five imaginary countries, Contradictoria, Northlandia, Dreamland, the Republic of Strata, and the Aristocratic Union. So each country just has just this really extensive micro-narrative. And I don't just use printmaking to tell the story. I also use installations and animated films, etc. But how did I get into printmaking? So the story story of Contradictoria revolves around this dystopian, ecotopian artist colony, Paluta. And the, the works are very much informed by Chinese modern propaganda posters. So I was doing this research. Basically, these propaganda posters, they were either super realistic oil paintings or they were printed, printmaking. And I would die before I do any realistic oil painting. (laughs) So it was clearly the graphic printmaking. And I'm, I've always been very drawn to graphic images. Mm. So the more I researched one thing led to another, I discovered this movement called the New Woodcut Movement in China in the 1930s to 40s. 
So at that time, the scholar and writer Lu Xun advocated the use of woodcuts as an artistic medium to promote proletarian well-being.、Mm. Okay, what does that mean? That was quite a mouthful. So woodcuts had actually existed in China for a very long time already, for over a thousand years, but it wasn't used as an artistic medium. It was used as religious or novel illustration. Or or Nianhua, which is like Chinese New Year's posters, very cheap, very inexpensive paper, and also it was done in a streamlined factory kind of way. So this person carves, this person designs, and this person prints. So it's it's a very factory kind of manufacturing. Whereas Lu Xun said, okay, we're going to just take this from craft to arts. We're going to、mm. elevate this to the level of oil painting or Chinese painting, but then it's much simpler because you only need a block of wood and a knife, and then you can do it anywhere. And then you, as the artist, will design and carve and print so that it becomes your tool. And because it's so simple and so portable, and and so cheap that it really represents the proletarian working class. Lifestyle, their problems, etc., and you can even take that to the war or to their neighborhoods and really portray their their lives. So, I the more I read about it, the more I was fascinated with it. So, not having done a single woodcut, <laughs> not really knowing what that means, I dived into this project. And because the new woodcut movement, they only had super graphic black and white.、Mm. I'm generalizing, but most of them were black and white, very graphic images, oil-based European ink, and just think that just even using European materials at a time when China was completely closed off to the rest of the world、mm. was really quite a political choice. So Lu Xun actually invited an artist from Japan to teach a group of of Shanghai artists how to do woodcuts because no artist knew how to do it, and that that kind of spread. So. I actually borrowed that visual language to really promote my ecotopia, Paluta, this artist colony, because I just felt like there were so many parallels between the two conceptually, and then I had to make it work visually. That's why I it, it was only woodcuts because conceptually that's the only language that makes sense. So that just determined a lot of artistic choices. So it has to be all based ink. It has to be monochromatic. It has to have these ridiculously optimistic slogans on 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 the image, etc. That's how、mm. long answer to your short question, Miranda. No, I love it. Thank you so much. That whole history was fascinating, and and so it's really interesting to me. So you were kind of found this. Historical practice, this artistic practice, and, and connected with it. And I love how you said you're like, no, no realistic oil painting. Yeah, for me, you're like, I'm definitely going to do these woodcuts. <laughs> and since since we're in audio format, talking about a visual medium, would you maybe spend just a couple moments more explaining what did they look like? These the the woodcuts that inspired you. You mentioned that they were the sort of monochromatic. They tend to involve text. What what was the the sort of formality of what it actually looked like? I think the works from this movement they they evolved. Of course, the earlier ones were really quite crude.、Mm. We you can generally think of all the works as black on white and very very graphic. And because it was such a new medium for these artists, 
the the artistic value wasn't very high in the beginning. They were really exploring and just learning the medium, right? But later on, especially in in the 50s and 60s, the artists had had built up enough experiences and knowledge in the community that they were really becoming more and more intricate. And then the content would be very much about either this really lofty human spirit of the working class or sort of portraying how difficult their lives were, portraying them as heroes, or sometimes just really happy pastoral images of of village life. So Mm -hmm. it's really just elevating them. But then it was actually really interesting because uh, at first it was this proletarian loudspeaker. So later in the 60s and 70s, the Communist Party actually adopted the same visual language as um, as parts of their official aesthetics. That's really interesting. So you saw this imagery, you connected with it, but at that point, you weren't a printmaker, right? You needed to figure out, how do I teach myself to do this? What was that like for you? I, I'm actually used to it. I always teach myself oh. new things. So I felt like, okay, I don't know how to do it, but if there's a will, there's a way. Printmaking was not the first medium I taught myself and it won't be the last. So I decided to do it and I just did it. And I, I practiced. So with my first, very first woodcut, I practiced with a lino first about this big, maybe 11 by 17 or something like that. And then I just did my first woodcut. And then now... Four years later, I realized it was the most stupid composition because I was carving out all the negative space and then leaving this really pencil thin line. And then Mm. a lot of it too. I just chose the most difficult composition to do for my very first one. And I I was just young and stupid. I I just totally didn't know. I wasn't even that young. I was just really stupid. I just had no idea, but I just did it anyway. And then it was painful in so many, in more stories I could tell you, I tried printing them myself and it was a nightmare. And then I really shouldn't have just started with such a huge block, which was about what's A2 size in America, like 45 by 60 centimeters, which is what, 20 by 24, is it? Yeah, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Something like that. It's, it's not a small block if you've never no. done woodcuts before. Yeah. And, then, and then I was crazy enough. I was like, okay, I'm going to do 99 because 99 is a conceptual number that really works for polluter because it's like one number from being perfect. And then also in Chinese, the, the, the number nine is, is eternal and it keeps repeating and repeating. Mm. So I just gave myself this really ridiculous project that I didn't know how I would do, but I always do that to myself. I, I taught myself how to do woodcuts. I taught myself how to animate. I taught myself how to write scripts. I taught myself how to make a website. I taught just if if you want to do something, there's always a way. Mm, yeah. And so were you looking at videos online? Were you reading books? All of the above? Where were you getting the the actual information? I think uh, I still remember. So when I decided to do it, I asked my friend who lives in Shenzhen, which is just across the border in China. So there was this artist village. I didn't even know what tools to buy or or use. Mm -hmm. And he was so gracious. He met me. 
at the border and then took me to this artist village and I bought like the cheapest tools and blocks ever. And then I just started carving, literally. I I didn't know anything. I literally just started carving. Mm -hmm. And actually the very first body of prints, I did seven. So I showed them at Pro Arts Gallery in California in 2018. They were they were pretty good. Some were stronger than others, but I, I'm mm-hmm. still in love with some of them. And then the following year, I did 13 more. And, and then at the end of the 20, I saw that I had a lot of problems I couldn't solve. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of things I, I, I couldn't figure out or I, I didn't understand. So I actually did what I always do. I signed out every single woodcut book in the Hong Kong University Library system. <laughs> and it was about, I don't know, about these many. Yeah. And I read every single one front to back. <laughs> because that. no one taught me, right? Like, I just didn't know yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. the basics. So I, I just read through all the books. And then at the end of it, I did feel my carving skills improved tremendously because Mm, I I filled in a lot of basic knowledge. I didn't know that you have to test prints before you do the final print. Like something Mm, so basic, I just, I just didn't know. I didn't know you have to test print and then revise the block and then, and then test print until it's ready. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because without that experience of being in a studio and seeing everyone else do it, like, what, how would you have known? It's just, it's, yeah, you had to learn by doing and learn by reading. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so, it was really, oh, it was really cool because I feel like had I followed a teacher, I would have followed what he or she does and I would just follow his or her way. Whereas mm-hmm. now it's completely my way. So I actually teach my students now, okay, I know this is the correct way of holding the tool. <laughs> I'll show you how it's done. But I'm telling you, I'm holding it the wrong way because I've held a pencil <laughs> for so many years and there's no way I'll change back. Just just yeah. so that this is correct, this is not correct. I'm using the incorrect way. So I, I just yeah. think it's really cool. And then I come up with all the little tricks myself that really works for me, like the height and the direction and all that. Your story is just so cool. I'm sorry. It's just like, it's like you, you, you saw this technique, you taught it to yourself. And then you also said, I'm going to make 99 woodcuts and I'm going to do some serious world building for Paluta. So could you tell me maybe a little bit about that process of, of, of building up Paluta as its own complex world? And was it something that you set out to do? Were you like, I want to build something totally new? Or did it just sort of evolve? And the more you worked on it, you realized that you were building an entirely new universe to make art from. Mm, it was a bit of both. So let me give a quick introduction to what the story of Paluta is. Yeah, please. Yeah. In 2084, the imaginary country, Contradictoria, solved their air pollution problem with planned polluter, which is to condense air pollution into building bricks. And with these bricks, we have these floating artist colonies in the sky. Artists, like you and me, can live, work, show for free forever. Oh my God, I'm so excited. (laughs) This sounds too good to be true, and it is. (laughs) is. (laughs) So there you go. That's the umbrella backbone narrative of polluter. So in 2014, I was in fishing village touristy area in Hong Kong, Tai O. And I was with my ex-boyfriend. 
at that time, ex-boyfriend, current husband. And we were in a coffee shop. It was July, very hot and muggy. And then I kind of dozed off. I woke up and then I wrote the whole story in one sitting. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yes. To be clear, I wrote the whole story of the prequel in one sitting, but we're not going to go into that. So one thing led to another. <laughs> um, this universe just spins. So I had this idea of these five countries, the, the great five industrial nations, the five countries that I mentioned before, Contradictoria, Dreamland, the Republic of Strata, the Aristocratic Union, and Northlandia. And it, it, it evolved in stages. So actually, at the beginning of the project, I, of course, didn't think it would become a lifelong project. I, I'm crazy and stupid, but not that crazy and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you don't decide on your first date that I'm going to marry that person. It's just like, it's just beyond crazy and stupid. So it actually, Paluta actually began first as a performance, as an interactive interview performance. And then I did two performances in Hong Kong. And then one thing led to another. I had my first solo show on Paluta at Pro Arts Gallery in, in California, in Oakland, that I mentioned. And at, in that show, I showed about 10 large canvas paintings. I showed some woodcuts. And I also did an updated version of that performance. And I think that exhibition was so pivotal to me and I'm forever grateful to Pro Arts and also to Natalia who invited me to the show because through that show I had so many interesting meaningful in-depth conversations and dialogue with other cultural workers about Paluta about 2084 mm. about my vision and I was just completely shocked and blown away and in disbelief how interested they are. It's just like they were so interested. They were asking me so many questions and they wanted to know more and they wanted to know what's the next stage. And and I I was completely blown away. But then at the same time, I also felt like, okay, I must have something good here. I must have discovered a gem. So I probably shouldn't just raise to finish it. I Why mm. wrap up something that's good? Why don't I just slowly peel one layer after another if if this is the candy that will never melt why don't I just peel the candy wrapper forever so that was the pivotal point when I thought mm, it it might be worthwhile to tease everything out and as soon as the mentality changed the work changed as well that's why I the woodcuts it was supposed to be like maybe 20 or 30 it, be, it grew to 99 immediately because <laughs> I thought it's worthwhile we'll do it and then the works also grew a lot more ambitious and they take a lot more time. So each country probably will take about 10 years, even though they mm. overlap. And I'm making a, an animated short film of Paluta and I've been doing it since 2018. And right now I have a small team supporting me back. They're really awesome. They're, I love them. Wenki, Molly, Lauren, I'll make you listen to this and you guys are awesome and I love you. <laughs> I couldn't have done this without you. That's great. And I'm really intrigued about the performance element you spoke to, because I know that happened in this exhibition. What is that? And how does that fit into the, the visual woodcut side of Paluta? Mm. So the only, the only possible way to be admitted to Paluta is through this entry interview with the Paluta mm. president. And, is that um, is that you? 
Yes, Miranda, I'm going to ask you an interview question now. Are you ready? Oh man, I really want to live there, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try my best. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna transform. This is not me. This is just the polluter president. Okay, don't be mad at me. Okay. <laughs> Miranda, as we transport everything to polluter via flying elephants, over time we have this problem. We now discover. A twenty-story pile of elephant dung outside Paluta. It is causing us huge sanitary and aesthetic headache. Please help us solve this problem now. Could we use the dung to grow plants that we could eat? Could we use it for fertilizer? How do you have the expertise? Yes, I'll figure it out. <laughs> I like that attitude. You were a bit too slow, but I think you will prove yourself. So, Miranda. Congratulations! You are on probation. Yay! Thank you, Mrs. President. <laughs> <laughs> so, Miranda, there you got a taste of what the performance was like. <laughs> <laughs> You're the very first one to be on probation. I don't think I've ever given out probations, and it's completely improv. So, I mm. only have the questions planned, but I have no idea what the other person will say, and I have no idea what I will say in response to that. That's so good. <laughs> When I was reading about Paluta, it was saying that you've got they have to your your artists have to fill out an entry form, and they talk about like today's art ecology, and what does that what does that mean? Like art ecology is that ecology in art or the ecology of art? What does that mean for you in the context of Paluta and the residents? So when I designed this world of Paluta, of course I wanted to talk about air pollution, and then I. I, I wanted to talk about how artists survived, and do we really want this utopia? And then I really love residencies as well. So there's that 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 flavor of residency. There's this utopian community, etc. So one of the、um, aspects I wanted to explore through Paluta was arts ecology. Basically, I, I feel like we as artists we 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 live in this community. But it's very opaque for anyone not in the arts. They have no idea what we do. They、mm. they don't know what they they think we wake up at three p.m. and <laughs> and then party all night, or or we take drugs, or we don't work, or we they, they just have no idea what our lives is. So、um, it was. I think part of it was I wanted to create this window for the outsider. To have this interesting perspective on what the arts ecology really is, but it's not how I say; it's how different people in different fields and different countries they、mm. give different perspectives, and some of them are really funny. I remember Sophie, whom I worked with at First Draft Gallery in Australia. She said, she said. She was really sad that when food went away from 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 art openings, because that's how she fed herself in college. Yeah. So, so they're they're funny answers, or they're some、yeah. super serious essay like answers. So I wanted to provide this window for the outsiders to take a peek into the the art world, and that was a body of of work in two thousand nineteen. And actually, I'm super excited because. I have been creating a new body of of Paluta portraits that will be exhibited this summer at the Vana、um, City Gallery in in Bulgaria, and it's the same idea of I invited or 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 the Quarantine Film Festival in Bulgaria, the host. Or my curators in Hong Kong, Hilda and Ivan. We invited our artist or filmmaker friends 
to become polluter artists. And then for this, this addition of their portraits, I'm asking them about either the artist's role in social conflict or the uh, impact of art on gentrification. And the two kind of reflect either recent incidents in Hong Kong or the, um, the local history of the film festival. So I'm really excited about that. That's super exciting. I, I want to make sure we get a chance to talk a little bit about the actual imagery in your woodcuts as well, because we've talked a lot about the kind of conceptual framework and how they're all talking about Paluta. And I'm glad that you brought up, or excuse me, not you, the president was asking me about the elephant dung, because that is definitely a theme in the imagery. Mm. And of course, the flying elephants, there's also a lot of other animals that come into it as well. And a lot of anthropomorphic animals. I have a note here that I've sort of, it just says like horny goat gods, because there are these these sort of goats splayed legged. Tell me just a bit about the actual iconography that's going into the images and how the anthropomorphic animals fit into Paluta. So the um, Paluta propaganda woodcuts, they basically are official propaganda visual materials of this place. So they really describe this place or or they depict aspects of, of this utopian community. And what you will find that even though they are all supposed to be depicting the same place, but they all look completely different architecturally and the animals, they look all different. It's because for me, this this idea of Paluta is really slippery. So you can never quite grasp the definitive architecture because there is none. So first of all, they all look different because they're meant to be all different. And I, I, my intention is actually totally serious. So my, my works are very much informed by writers like Orwell or Swift or Oscar Wilde. And they're just so good at raising serious issues, but in this really ridiculous and humorous and just such entertaining way. They're, I love their work so much, all of them. So you could see a lot of direct references. And for me, I, I think I'm funny. So <laughs> I, I think so too. <laughs> thank you, Miranda. Thank you. Thank you for humoring me. <laughs> Unintended. <laughs> and I, I, first of all, I think art should be genuine. So if mm. you're funny, you should really use that. And if you think humor is your tool, then use it. I mean, use it outside of dates. Use it in your art. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and also because if I talk about serious issues and if I tell you off because I, I have a lot of environmental messages in my works as well, if I tell you not to use plastic or not to do anything, no one's going to listen. But if you use tools like humors or, or this fantastical storytelling, if you can move people, it's much, more, it's much easier to create this entry point, to create this dialogue and this space where people, because it's not so close to home, and even people might not completely agree with you, they might be receptive to your images or, or the humor or the funniness of, of, of your works. And, and that is really my secret weapon. That's why the works, I, they're always about animals. By the way, I, I hate, I just hate drawing people. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. It's like, as soon as there's a person, I'm not interested. So, and I love animals. I make animal noises as a hobby. <laughs> so 
So it's a, it's a hobby. And then, and then I love drawing them, carving them. So there are these flying elephants. They move stuff. We have these fire breathing dragons. They transform your corpses into fertilizer. Mm. We have these resident pigs. They eat up all your food waste and then they're transformed into Chinese ham every Chinese New Year. We have just these wonderful animals at Paluta. You really have to visit. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> Paluta sounds like the absolute dream full of animals no pollution this is this is great biggest problem is elephant dung i love what you're saying about packaging these incredibly serious issues like environmentalism our planet pollution i mean it is the issue of our generation and of generations to come we it is extremely serious it's deadly serious and that ability to create a narrative that actually is intriguing enough where people have to listen, I feel like is such a powerful aspect of art. That art can do that in a way that other ways of communicating can't. Through the creativity and through the beauty that art has. And it's just wonderful to use that as a way to take on what is actually a very serious and kind of terrifying issue, which is the destruction of the only planet we have yeah absolutely i mean who wants to read statistics for fun even my mm. friend who has a phd in statistics he doesn't read <laughs> numbers for fun he does other things so if you think about it when when we're not working we're always looking for the art we're watching netflix we're listening to music mm-hmm. we're we're going to movies we're, we're always looking for art even shopping for nice clothes that's fashion design that's art so absolutely really you think art is frivolous but it's what we we're always looking for it even food mm-hmm. is art cooking is art like just taking enough calories that's just sustaining your lives but then beyond a certain point you want to look for tastier food you want to arrange the food so it's nicer it's aesthetically pleasing as well so we're always looking for the arts because we always are looking for that experience to make our lives a bit deeper, more interesting, more colorful. Absolutely. And I think people don't realize that. I think they think art exists in museums and it's expensive to get in and you can't touch it. And that's what art is. And it's this very, very narrow view when I totally agree with you that it is Netflix, it is fashion, it is food, it is music. It's what makes our life fulfilling, truly, is this ability to consume something that was made thoughtfully by someone else and have a connection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it makes life worth living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned in passing this example of I don't want you to use plastic. And you actually do have a piece called Plastic, Plastic Everywhere. And that was a four-year project. And I just love this idea of, of, of you're like, all right, four years, it's not enough. I'm going to take on one that's decades now, but <laughs> your multi-year projects. But do you want to speak to, to that one a little bit? Just because you, you were talking about plastic earlier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Plastic, Plastic Everywhere was the prequel, the mother of 2084, basically. So the story I told you where I woke up from a nap with a lifelong project was this story. So the story goes like this. In the early 21st century, all marine animals love eating plastic so much that they refuse to eat anything else. So the G5, the grade five industrial nations, decided to make this a win-win situation. They set up regular feeding sessions for these animals 
And it worked remarkably well for decades until one day the animals stopped coming. What are we to do? <laughs> There's so much plastic. So in 2084, at the G5 annual meeting, the delegates of Contra Victoria proposes: if animals can learn to eat plastic, why can't children? <gasps> so that's the context of plastic, plastic everywhere. And then in that world, a teacher and also an heiress, she is the only person who thinks there is something wrong with this picture. And she meets a hundred-year-old sea turtle, possibly the only last marine animal left in the world. So that was. A four-year project. I hope no one comes back to me and asking for a sequel because I feel really done with that project. Yeah, but that one I've done some Chinese paintings, installation. It was my first moving drawings short film.、Mm. Yeah, that was yeah. how I taught myself how to animate. I'll never do it again on my own. <laughs> yeah. YouTube is wonderful, but I would rather use it for something something else. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. In in the time we have left, I'd love it if you get a chance to speak to maybe kind of the future of Paluta. And we've talked about it being this multi-decade project and a couple of exhibitions coming up. But is there any sort of dream you have for it? So, if time and money were no object, where would you like to take Paluta? Okay, I actually don't believe in dreams, even though everything came from a dream. I only <laughs> believe in goals. Because、mm. I think if you make things into a dream, then they're just too unattainable. And if you ask me, I feel like I live my dream every day. I love my work.、Mm. I'm always tired. I'm always overworked, but I don't want it any other way. And、uh, right now, I'm working on towards my muse- my first museum solo in Bulgaria, which is super exciting. It's been postponed、yeah. by two years, and it's finally happening. In August 2022, and later in October, I will actually go to the North Pole, the Arctic, to <gasps> conduct research trip for Northlandia, and that has also been postponed twice. So I'm also super I'm excited.、Sure. Yeah. Yes, and I've done 42 woodcuts so far of the Paluta propaganda woodcuts. So right now, I'm planning for phase two. Which is actually 18 images inspired by 18 levels of hell, and、mm. actually just today I printed some reference images. So I, I'm super super excited, and I plan to use gold. Okay, I don't know anything、mm. about printmaking, so if audiences, if you have any tips on what good gold relief ink is. Can you can you please get in touch? I would love to hear from you. And then I think also from this project, I learned that I really love to carve. So I also、mm. want to explore a body of work where I just carve and not print and make them sort of like original painting slash carving relief carving. And I'm super excited about that as well. Probably a body of works after the North Pole trip on Northlandia. So these are a couple of things that I have in mind. And I'm finishing the. I'm still working on the animated short film on Paluta.、Yeah. With my team, they're probably working now as we speak. I was texting them right before our call. <laughs> so thank you, team. I love you. <laughs> That is so exciting. I have always really wanted to go to either pole, honestly, because they just seem so exciting and the animals there and and all of it. So I. Can't wait to hear about that and and see what comes out of it for Northlandia. I, I'm a little bit curious, just sort of the the logistics of it. 
I mean, you, you must have a guide when you go, right? You're not going to just head out onto the ice in nice coat. You'll be having <laughs> like someone to, there's got to be like a, a structure. Is it, is it a residency or, or what is, what's the structure of the visit? Yeah. I'm crazy and stupid, but not that crazy and stupid. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so if fellow artists are interested, it's the only residency program I found in the Arctic that accepts open calls. They're called the Arctic Circle. You can just Google mm. the Arctic Circle residency and you'll find them. And it's their, I believe their 13th year. And it's really cool because they put a group of scientists, artists, innovators, and educators on a romantic boat for pretty much two weeks. And mm. you do your own project. They're all related to the Arctic. So that's the, um, that's the plan. And I'm really lucky because... I think it's going to be called and patron of mine actually connected me to Canada Goose and they're going to sponsor all my outfits. So I think I'm going to be really warm. And I love what they do. Like it's exactly, she's so, I met with the marketing director and she said, we can't not say no because we do stuff with polar bear. We do stuff with the indigenous population. And what you do is 300% in line with what we do. So it was an offer we couldn't turn down. And I was like, okay, perfect match. So I'm just so excited about it. That's so great. And you'll, will you get to keep the coats and things that you wear? I don't know how much use you might get of them in Hong Kong, but... <laughs> Maybe I'll put you in touch with her and you could ask for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll be like, as I am Michelle's representative and we want we want her to keep the coats. We w- we That's- want to keep those things. <laughs> but they've been yeah. so generous and so nice. I just went for a fitting session and I totally felt like a celebrity. They helped me put oh on gosh. the boots and take off the boots and it was just ridiculous how and how generous they were as well. They, they were outfitting me for the whole body. That's yeah, and they kept so asking great. me, do you need anything else? Do you need anything else? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're wonderful. Fi- and they do wonderful things too, I think. That's so cool. Well, we're actually running out of our time. I feel like I could, could chat with you forever. But you've talked about all these exciting things coming up. So please let people know where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they see what you're doing and what you're up to? And and this many, many year journey of Paluta to the North Pole and back. Thank you, Miranda. I would really love for new friends to sign up for my bi-weekly love notes. I actually share inside stories and artworks that I don't share anywhere else. If you click on keep in touch on my website, that's where I share most of my in-depth story. But if you want to follow me on social media on Instagram or Facebook, I'm at Michelle KS Fong. And it's the same for the website. The website is michellekfong.com. K for king and S for sugar. <laughs> okay. Michelle King Sugar Fong. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'll definitely put a link to all of that in the show notes. And I just really look forward to keeping in touch and seeing your adventures and seeing how this multi-year, multi-nation woodcut project continues to unfold. 
So it was great to to have a chat with you and your Thank evening, you. my my morning. Yeah. Thank you so much, Miranda. I just want to say that you were just so good at leading the questions, and it felt so easy, and it felt like just chatting with a friend. Thank you for making it so easy and and really fun. Now I can't go to sleep because I'm so excited about the <laughs> competition. I'm all hyped. I know. I'm hyped too. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, this is like way、great. too much fun for midnight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much, and I'll, I'll definitely be in touch. And、um, yeah, I hope if if there's anything I can ever do to help support the project, or or if you're ever in the states, please let me know. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we we do go to the states quite a lot、um, this summer as well, but to the east coast. But I'll definitely、uh, be in touch if I'm in in your neighborhood. Yeah, please do. Yeah. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content, like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor Timothy Pauschak digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. And if monetary support isn't in the cards for you right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our great sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent ya. But as always, the very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Michael Ginsberg, co-founder of Legion Paper. Michael is an American original and a paper salesman through and through. We talk about his founding of Stonehenge Paper in the 1970s, circumnavigating the world several times over, traveling to different paper mills, what makes good paper good, and of course, selling paper to Andy Warhol. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 